Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. So the podcast is on a roll with so much momentum, absolutely incredible guests. I have a bunch of interviews that are in the queue, so they're going to keep coming fast and furious. Today, you are going to hear from ultra running superstar, outside magazine columnist, mom of two strong girls, and author of Running Home, the incredible Katie Arnold. So I think the universe works in crazy ways sometimes. Um, here's my little segue into how Katie happened to come on the show. I, uh, I happened to tune into a recent Another Mother Runner podcast. Side note for those of you Another Mother Runner fans, Dimity and I are interviewing each other in a few days for an upcoming episode that we're going to air on both of our shows. All right, so... Back to the AMR podcast with Katie Arnold. Well, I guess I just gave that away. The guest was Katie Arnold that I was listening to. So I was listening to her story and she mentioned that her crew at Leadville this year, the Leadville 100, which she won, (laughs) included her Boulder friend, Susie. And I kept thinking like that, I wonder if I know Susie. As if like, I know all the people who do and support ultra running in Boulder. You know, it's funny because if I was in like Iowa or Arkansas, maybe I'd have a shot at knowing all the people who ultra run, but you know, Boulder has a big ultra running community. So anyway, I love the interview and I thought to myself, I need to get Katie on the podcast. Literally when I got home from that run, I had an email from my former podcast guest, episode 93, Susie Reinhart chooses brave over perfect. So Susie's launching her first book and asked me to MC her launch, launch party, which I'm doing um, next few weeks. But in the same email, she said, I also think you should interview my friend, Katie Arnold. So there it is. The circle was complete. You know, I just realized like, wow, this is definitely going to happen and it's got to happen. So I need to pause for a second to remind us that life is full of opportunities. And I used to laugh when people would say, you just need to set your intentions and they'll happen. But look, here I was setting my intention and Katie Arnold fell right into my lap. Not to mention that when I reached out to her, she happened to be traveling through Boulder a week later. So we got to do this interview in person, which is so, so fun. So here's my advice. Take a moment and set an intention. And while you're doing that and thinking about your intention, I'll fill some airspace here and share with you a little story about our sponsor, Skirt Sports, the brand I launched in 2004 because I just couldn't shake this idea that women's athletic wear was ready for a revolution. 
And I'm talking about a full-on female revolution. And you know when you have an idea and you just realize that it's important, that it's something you must pursue, that it's creating some sort of crazy ripple effect in your body, like it's physical and you just can't ignore it. Or you think, and you look forward and you think like, when I'm 70, I don't want to look back and say, I wish I had tried that. So those are the good ideas. My idea for skirt sports took hold in 2003 on a training run when I saw my reflection in a storefront window in Lyons, Colorado. And I thought, I look like a boy. My clothes are horrible. They don't fit right. They aren't cute. I feel like I'm leaving a part of myself at home when I go out and do my training. And what is so wrong with wanting to feel pretty? You know, I ran home that day and scribbled down some notes about like shaking up the world of women's athletic wear. And nine months later, literally nine months after I had that idea, it's like I birthed a baby. Seriously. I crossed the finish line of the 2004 Ironman Wisconsin in first place wearing a prototype of the first ever running skirt. And I was off to the races for real. And it's been almost 15 years with this company, and I'm so proud of creating a brand that cares so much about women's happiness. So there you go. Sponsor plug. Please check us out. Go to skirtsports.com. Use the code RUN20 for 20% off. And if you're local, stop in the store. Say hi if I'm there. Grab me. Say hi. Ask them to come find me and try on all the stuff because that's really the fun part. Today, I have an intention, and that is to bring positivity to the world in everything I do. If this podcast speaks to you, please head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Nicole DeBoom and support this work. Um, People are supporting anywhere from $2 to $20 a month. It truly means the world to me, and I want to keep bringing love and light for the long term through my Run This World podcast. Okay, back to the show. I want to warn you that uh, there may be a little hiccup partway through. So during the interview, I like asked a question and I outed one of the big mysteries in the book and Katie was sort of giving me the like, cut, don't go there sign, you know? So I just paused and and I was like, oh, oops, I thought it wasn't a secret because it's in the book. But she was like, no, let's just, let's not talk about that. But we can talk about and maybe you'll notice, maybe you won't. That's the beauty of editing. I'm not giving anything away. But now that I've got you wondering, head over to your local bookstore or to Amazon and buy her book, Running Home by Katie Arnold. It's also available as an audio book narrated by Katie herself. Again, it's called Running Home and it is a definite must read, especially after you listen to this episode. Okay, then it is now time to bring Katie Arnold on the show. Wow. You know, so I'm sitting here with the amazing Mm -hmm. Katie Arnold riffing about her amazing husband. We may as well start there. He's amazing. Because we all need supporters in our life. What's really interesting, um, you know, we're going to get into and dig a little bit into your book and then some of the journey and the stories that come out of that. But uh, one of the things that really grabbed me was that your ultra running career started with him by your side Mm -hmm. also as a runner. Yeah. 
but then evolved to you being the primary runner and him being the supporter. Mm-hmm. Right. And usually that would be awkward. I mean, there were... I felt there was a moment when we did, I think it was our second race, but I'll just back up and say that we did our first ultra marathon together and it was, um, I had been coming out of this period of very acute anxiety that was after my father's death and it was probably about 18 months and, um, you know, you come out of the weeds a little bit and you can see farther in front of you than you have been, you know, when you're thick in the grief and, um, we both, you know, it was New Year's and I wrote down, because I do New Year's resolutions, I don't always keep them, but I wrote down my athletic goal for 2012 is blank. And I wrote the exact same thing on a slip of paper for Steve, my husband. And I, and he kind of rolls his eyes because he is not a resolutions guy Do you always, all. do you always give him the sheet of paper never, too? I've never given him the sheet before and never since. It was like something just struck me. Wow. And... Um, Steve's very in the moment. He's a total Zen guy without being a Zen guy, which is why he's perfect for me. <laughs> I love that. And um, but I gave him just on like a whim that piece of paper, and I filled it out sort of like you know you're in school and you're covering your piece of paper right. so your neighbor doesn't see. And I wrote train for and run a 50k ultra marathon, and I handed it to Steve, and he kind of rolled his eyes, but like humored me in his Steve way, and in his scrawly left-hand way, he, he writes something, and then he hands it back to me, and I look at them, and he said, train for and run a 50k ultra marathon, and we had not been discussing this. I mean, he had seen me running a lot, but w- there was not a discussion that, you know, was the precursor to this moment. And I looked at him and I said, you know what this means? Like, we have to do this now. And you have to do it together. And we did it together. Although, because we had, let's say Maisie was one. I had just finished nursing her. So maybe she was like 15 months and Pippa was three and a half. Um, You know, with little ones, we were not on the trails together. It was all tag team. I would run, come home, take the kids, he would run. And so we were training, quote unquote, together. But it was the classic outdoor parent handoff yes oh my which gosh. is so important and it's also challenging it is because you don't get that intimate time Mm-mm. on the trails moving your bodies together no no and so we would do maybe that training cycle for that race which is the Jemez 50k race we did maybe a handful of weekend runs together and our friends would take our girls but th- back then the girls were little I mean that was a big ask and our friends stepped in and took them for two or three hours. But Steve's such a great athlete, but he's a contrarian, so he doesn't really train, you know. And so he doesn't really train for Wait, things. Wait, that's what that's called? Yeah. <laughs> a <laughs> rebel. It was called. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, you would never say that Steve was not motivated that or – But he um, – yeah, he just likes to do things his way, which is off the couch. And so he didn't train that much. And I was training, and then our training, our quote-unquote training would overlap on these weekend runs. And we would go out and have a few hours. And um, and then we did the race. But you did the race together. And I wondered, you know... Well, so, until he got stomach stuff. And yeah. Then, yeah. <laughs> and then I left him. Right. And were you conflicted in the moment? In the moment, it was really clear. He was like, you go. And I hadn't even... I wasn't thinking about winning at all. You know, it was my first ultra but there was a momentum and your yeah. body tells you when you're in the momentum and i knew that steve wanted me to go so i probably only hesitated a little bit and then 
went on. And I did, you know, I had, after I left him, I kind of kept thinking, well, where is he? Is he going to catch me? I hope he catches me. Um, but he was really clear. He's like, you go. We had a huge so, climb in front of us. How much did you beat him by? <laughs> I mean, I think an hour. Oh, so he really, yeah. He suffered at the end He there. was, yeah, yeah. He was in and out of the, the aid and... Yeah. Well, and that's what you get for being a contrarian. Yeah. Well, I don't think <laughs> just he kidding, was having, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> he was having stomach stuff. Yeah. That absolutely. Was the issue. And that's a normal thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, people listening to this podcast are athletes of all levels. Some people are trying to run their first 5K, and some people are out there running ultras. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the trick of the trade. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like it's luck well, if you actually are able to get through a long event, an endurance event, without a stomach issue. I mean, I don't want to jinx it, but I have a good stomach. Knock on wood. <laughs> Can I knock on the wood? Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, we used to, my husband and I used, used to talk about that you need to develop an iron gut. Mm-hmm. You just need to be able to take in whatever's out there. Because you don't know what the right what the aid stations are always going to have and what the you know conditions hold for you that day. Yeah, and if you're dying, you need something. Yeah, and it so, might not be your normal thing. Right. So I I am always I you know I've been good about my nutrition and my stomach's been good to me. So I just eat 200 calories an hour. That's two gels, two goos. Yeah. Um and. I don't bonk, but if I like space out and don't do it or get lazy, like on training runs, you know how that when you get close to getting home and you're like, well, I'm not going to eat because I'm almost home, but that's really when you need it, even, you know, because the time your your watch is telling you it's time to eat. So sometimes I'll just be lazy and not eat. Yeah. And then I get r- spacey and klutzy and trippy, you know, and. Oh yeah. And that's the dangerous part too on the trail. So I just have learned to eat and. And my stomach is cooperative. I mean, knock on wood, I have not had issues. And I've also trained myself to eat whatever they're offering at the yeah. aid stations. Which, um, do you have like an eating regime at home? Are you like vegetarian or paleo? No, I'm trying. Or? I was paleo for a while and it was fantastic. I've never felt better. Fast wow. and recovery time was really minimal. But I found that I was eating a lot more meat. And that didn't feel good sort of on an environmental level. But also just, you know, it felt I felt like meat was all in me like I, that I was all meat all the time in order to get the protein wow, yeah. and so I sort of backed off but I felt amazing I mean when I was doing it it's funny I've heard that when you try a new like eating philosophy there's a honeymoon period I think that was it 100% because I I'm a primarily vegan mm-hmm. with the occasional fish you know or cheating mm-hmm. pastry right mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and I had a huge honeymoon period but a couple years in, my iron just hit the tank. Uh, yeah. And, and no one really talks about that. They talk about protein a mm-hmm. lot, right? Where right. you can get your protein, but they're not like, oh, well, you might be a menopausal, you know, right. woman who still works out a lot, who's a vegan. Well, duh, look at your iron yeah. intake. Yeah. Right? So those are things like if you're going to cut out your meat and the miles you're logging. Yeah. You know, we were talking about my husband and I, even that when you're running you're breaking blood vessels in your feet you're like losing blood right and you and as a woman who we're roughly the same age um when you hit our years you know we have to be really careful so i find that the 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 um, paleo was great but then i did sort of hit that plateau with it where the returns weren't as high and then i went back to eating grains but i don't i try not to do gluten because i feel that in my joints 
I've been sort of like gluten lazy lately and eating gluten because there's bread around and you're traveling yeah I'm traveling I'm on book tour and so I get that sort of just Mm -hmm. like crunchiness in my joints and so that's a big wake up of like okay let's get the gluten out again you know this is reminding me of something that your dad said in the book that you repeated a couple times which was Mm -hmm. you know your body yeah pay attention to your body you will know when something's not right correct and that's great advice that he gave me and I I loved it and I also like took it to the nth degree into just total anxiety mode well let's talk about that a little bit because a big part let's talk about your book yeah great boom it's called running home Mm -hmm. you just signed my copy (laughs) I'm so excited and you're here in Boulder because you're doing book tours Mm -hmm. all over the place for a while yeah while you're training I know, which is perfect. I I kicked (laughs) off my, I just want to say quickly before we talk about the book, as I kicked off my book tour in California a few weeks ago, and um, the very first day that I got there, I ran the Marin Ultra Challenge, and I was supposed to do the 50 miles, and of course, going into it, I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to run 50 miles the day before I do my book tour. Like, that's who I am, and that's how I roll, and the two, running and writing, are so symbiotic for me that when one isn't flowing, the other's flowing, and when you add motherhood or parenthood into the mix, it's this incredible positive feedback loop, and so I knew that running would have to be part of my book tour because well, I just love to run and I'm training. And it's like the epitome of your And book. it's the full expression. Right. So running is like, racing is the tip, tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. It's yep. only a tiny part of why I run. Running is really my true expression of who I am in the world as a creative person and as a athlete and a mother. Um, and so I didn't, you know, I was like, of course I'm gonna run into my book tour, literally. And I got there and I looked at the forecast and it was calling for straight up rain in in Marin. And I thought, (laughs) and I was still going to go. And then I was with my Zen friend, Natalie, who's in the book a lot as this sort of very wise guru. And um, I was like, you know, Nat, it's going to rain. I feel like maybe I shouldn't spend eight and a half or nine hours in the really cold rain before I kick off this national book tour. And she was like, that's a great idea. And so I've never done this before, but I drop my distance the day before and I went down to 50k and that was a hard thing for me because as you know from reading the book I go for it right and um yeah but what's funny is you didn't say yeah I just didn't do it you said no I just dropped my distance yeah. to 50k <laughs> right well <laughs> which is not, a lot not doing it would not have been that that the, would have been right because I knew all. that I wanted yeah. to run my way into the flow state that would be the best that would best serve the book and the book tour yes and so not running is the opposite of flowing to me right like just bailing at the last minute my motto in life is just stick with the plan you know when in doubt stick with the plan and so I just modified the plan but it was an amazing race and I won the race and I set a PR at that distance and um, but there wasn't very much fanfare, which was kind of perfect too, because it reinforced that whole idea for me of racing, which is the racing and the running. You know, the racing serves the running, and the running serves the writing. And so the the racing is just like a tiny piece, but it felt really good that day. <laughs> well, it's interesting because a lot of people say like I prefer the racing over the training, mm-hmm. and then there's people say I prefer the training mm-hmm. over the racing. Yeah, I would say not either for me. I prefer both in the moment. I prefer uh, what I'm doing in that moment. Because you figured out how to get in the moment? Yeah. 
Now, is this something Natalie has helped you with? Well, Natalie, my wise (laughs) friend, Natalie Goldberg, who's an amazing writer and has written 15 books. And um, I have learned to get in the moment and and to sort of hold kind of both stories, like that I am a competitive athlete and that I am trying to be more mindful and in the moment. And so those two are often at odds. Being a competitive athlete, you want to win. And being in the moment means not grasping or striving, but just being where you are. And so one of the things Natalie has told me, I think she she didn't even tell me, but she had told some of her students, um, her writing students, um, and I heard it on one of her podcasts, where she says, inhabit your life moment by moment. And that really stuck with me. So I just sort of, instead of life, you know, before a race, I'll just switch out, inhabit your race moment by moment. So I'm just in it. I'm just meeting the race and meeting myself where I am in that moment. You know what it does too a little bit is it takes some of the pressure off. It does because it does. I mean, when I'm trying to think before Marin, um, was I stressed? No, I think I was just, I knew what I was there for, which was to run into my book tour and to run my way into that flow state. Yeah. And I don't always have the flow. I mean, like anyone, the flow ebbs and flows. (laughs) And Winter's a hard time for me because I'm, I definitely have like a seasonal effective thing happening with the short days. Even though I live in New Mexico, which is sunny, I think for the longest time I thought, well, I can't possibly have that seasonal thing because it's sunny all the time. But it's not really the sun or not sun. It's the day length. You know, it's mm. that circadian yeah. rhythm. So winters are tough. I have that like lower energy slump. I still run through them and ski through them. But I'm not in that optimal flow state. And and I thought, well, this will, you know, a run and a race will help me run my way back there. Well, let's talk about what you mean by flow state. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, you know, I've read your book. Mm-hmm. I, I speed read some <laughs> of it because I wanted to get through as much as I could before you came. Um, and I know that meditation mm-hmm. was introduced to you yeah. through this uh, la- process of you know grieving your father's death mm-hmm. and running and all the things that have happened in the last decade of your life and um, and when you say flow it makes me feel like going into a state yes. beyond your body yes for me the flow state and it's you know people use that term a lot um, and for me it's in it's a state of heightened awareness where um, your senses are very alert and you are just it's hard to explain, but it's like you become the thing you're doing itself. You transcend oh, I yourself. I love this. And I, so for me, I become running itself. And um, so I'm not a, a brain thinking about running. I'm not even a body, even though my body is doing the running. I'm not even a body doing the running. I am running. And so there's no, I don't know, there's no difference between me and the thing I'm doing. And um, for someone who has anxiety, and especially coming out of this very acute period of anxiety after my father died, where I thought I was dying of something different every week, you know, I could hear a news report and think that I had that. And, um, you know, to be able to move beyond thought and rational thought and sort of analytical mind, which is helpful. I mean, that's what gets the kids to school on time and, you know, remembers your writing deadlines. But your busy brain can get very busy and up to no good sometimes. And for me, it was that cycle of worry, you know, just that irrational anxiety that kept 
you know, whipping around. And so for me, the running was really how I ran myself out of those thoughts. So it was like your thoughts were on sort of a circular loop and they just kept going They just going kept going. Around. And like I have a very big imagination. I mean, I've been a writer since I was very young. And my imagination is one of my best things as a writer. But it can also, like anything, your best strength can be sort of, you know, your worst enemy at times. And so my imagination was going haywire. Um, and the running really, people say, well, were you, were you running away from them, your fears? And no, it was more like I was running into them and through them. And because you, I was afraid a lot on the trail. You know, I'd be running and I have passages in the book where I'm like, mm -hmm. what's that feeling in my chest? Am I having a heart attack? So, you know, running alone in the mountains. And I, we have real mountains in New Mexico and real backcountry right out the door. And, you know, I'm afraid of animals and other people for reasons I explain in the book. And, you know, so it was like I wasn't free of fear, but I went anyway. And that's a kind of, I think, what Natalie means by inhabiting your life, like you're in the fear, stay in it. Don't try to resist it or fight it or run from it, but be in it, inhabit it. And that's really what okay. I was doing in my running, I guess. Yeah. And so for people who want to reach that state, mm -hmm. that place, how do you, what kind of advice do you have for them? Well, I mean, people love to give those like hacks or shortcuts or, you know, six tips for. And Isn't that's, that a shortcut? <laughs> that's not my style, but I do know things that work for me to help me get into that flow state, which is to not focus on the end result, I think is the first thing. That's and a so, great advice. Um, you know, I'll give my example. I trained for Leadville for most of last year, and I was never thinking about winning Leadville, right? I was thinking about finishing Leadville, which seemed to me in a very audacious feat. I had never run 100 miles. My longest distance was 100 kilometers, 62 miles. That's a big spread. Yeah. And so each day I just went out to do the best I could that day to get myself ready. And so I wasn't focused. I didn't have these audacious plans, you know, to prove myself it was just, can I do it? What can I do each day to move the mark a little bit, to be in that moment and awake to that day? Um, and so that's the first thing, I think, is to let go of that, you know, the Buddhists or the Zen, um, what that Zen Buddhists would call it gaining idea, right? Like people are saying like, oh, you can get X better. At, you can get better at X by meditating. And the, the Zen Buddhists would say, well, that's a gaining idea. Like you just sit to sit. And that's how I tried to run, like run to run. And the other things that helped me get mm. into that flow state is gratitude. Just looking around and just being super grateful for what I have and for the life that I've made and the, the beautiful world in which we live. So these incredible mountains in New Mexico and, and wild places. And um, humility is a big one for me. So um, just feeling small in the good way. Um, is is kind of a gateway for me to that flow state. And I say that because when I was driving up to Leadville, I had this moment where I had to, pull, this was right before the race, and I had to pull over on the side of the road right as I was coming into town because I was so overwhelmed with gratitude that I had even gotten that far. I mean, I this is not in this book, but I'm working on another book, but I broke my leg in a really bad wilderness accident. And my doctor said, you should never run again. And so the very fact that I was showing up for my first 100-mile race, 
after all that, I felt so grateful. And I just thought, you know, whatever happens is icing on the cake. It's a celebration of my road back from that injury. So I kind of freed myself from, you know, wanting anything in particular. And Oh, I love this. And running has taught me really, you know, well, I should back up and say the other big piece for me for flow is preparation. So knowing that I've done the work, and that's the daily work, whatever it is, whatever your sport or whatever your thing is, is showing up every day and doing the work, even on the days when you don't feel like it. Like today I had that really muddy run. So, you know, I can't believe I didn't fall and just trash my, my every joint in my body. But it's showing up and doing it. And, um, and then knowing that when you get to the race or whatever your big objective is, you've done it. So you, now you can just let go and just receive. So I, I have this way of like working hard and then when I show up for whatever that big thing is, I just shift into receive mode. I literally feel like I'm like, show me what this is about. I'm open. Teach me something. Oh, and so, wow. and that is humility too. That's humility, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that was that feeling of when I got to Leadville. I knew I was ready. I knew I had done the work, and I said to a few people, including my friend Natalie, I said, "I'm ready," and that's a pretty great feeling. And um, but then when you get into town, and there's that pre-race meeting with 800 runners. And the race director, Ken, or the race founder, Ken, is like, you know, half of you won't finish. And you look around, and you're like, that really could be me. Mm-hmm. Because anything can happen on race day. I mean, that's why ultra running or any kind of endurance thing is such a good metaphor for life. Because really anything can happen. And the trick is to sort of open to what is happening rather than trying to force your own agenda oh yeah and I think it goes back a little bit to your first point which is don't focus on the end result right I remember um Natalie in the book your 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 guru exactly she said about your first ultra run the one you did Mm -hmm. with Steve that you won Mm -hmm. and she said to you I knew you'd win because you didn't care about winning yeah that's huge that was big that was big and Um, It was true. You know, for me going in, it was about the process. And I even have a line in the book where in that early stage of training where I said the funny things happens, the more I run, the less I think about the race or something. I'm paraphrasing. And the running became the reason, you know, became the purpose. And it was the process, not the end result. And that's always been my guiding principle. But it's easy to forget, especially when you start having success and start winning winning is nice you know and it's easy to get attached to that right and so for me it's this constant kind of I won't say struggle but it's this practice to always come back to that this is about making steady effort every day not trying to get some place you know because when you get to that place there's going to be the next place right and there's no good time to stop right and the curve of a career is sort of um it's very hard to predict right and I you know none of this I will say it was premeditated for me and that that's an important piece and in the book and I think it comes through in the book which is you know my father got sick in 2010 a couple months after my second daughter Maisie was born and um he began to die very quickly like as fast as she was growing he was dying and um 
we were very close because he was a National Geographic photographer. And so his medium was photographs, but he was very much a storyteller. He just told stories through pictures. And I had always wanted to be a writer, I think in no small part because of his influence. And so my thing was words and he did pictures, but he, he showed me how to be present. I mean, to be a good photographer and a storyteller, you have to be present and awake and noticing and taking note. But also he had this incredible humility where it wasn't about him. You know, he wasn't trying to control a shot. I think some photographers do, but he, you know, as a photojournalist for National Geographic, he was capturing, he was telling the story. And that was very powerful to me. And a little bit against the grain as a journalist. I mean, I've worked for almost my entire career at Outside Magazine, and editors always want to know what the angle is or the hook, what's the lead and what's the kicker, mm-hmm. and like, you know, what's the shakeout of the story? And they want to know that before you even go on assignment. Well, apply that to your life. You know, and you can't Crazy. know. Exactly. And you can't, and that's a lot of hubris to say, well, I'm going to go in and control the story. So you have to just be awake to the story and present and, you know, and that's a practice, like to really, yeah. you want to pay attention. And that's really what my father taught me. So he, his death sent me, it was very profound. And it, I went into this deep anxiety because of it. And it took me about 18 months to right. come out. Um, and it was coupled to, or was it the actual diagnosis, like a postpartum anxiety? It was coupled right. with so, being a uh, second time new mom? Yeah, and it was a total mashup, right? A perfect yeah. storm of mm-hmm. things, like the grief, It was definitely some PTSD because he had gotten sick and died so quickly, Um, which now in retrospect seems kind of like a blessing because we had our time with him, but it was short enough that he didn't suffer. I mean, he suffered quite a bit, but it was not, it didn't get drawn out. But, you know, it was, I think it was for sure PTSD, the grief, and then throw in like a little dollop of postpartum. Wow. And so let's go back a little bit to your childhood mm-hmm. and your relationship mm-hmm. with your dad and your sister Meg, yeah. who you talk about yeah. a lot, who was going to be the writer. But then she gave that yeah. dream up and you stepped right I into know. it. I <laughs> know. Right. So, but you know, one of the big things that happened is that your parents got divorced when you mm-hmm. were little. Right. And that's not, that wasn't that common in the early 70s or mid 70s. Right. It was starting to be very common. That's when it was sort of the very kickoff of that wave. And, um, you know, there wasn't really a roadmap. No. And so, um, and I, I go into this a lot in the book, so I won't really mm-hmm. s- reveal it here, but, um, you know, my my parents split and then my sister and I moved to New Jersey with our mother. And so, you know, we were basically commuting, but only every few months to see our father. And um, we went, my mother would put us on the train in Newark, New Jersey, and she still shudders to this day. And my mom's amazing, but she'll just, when when she thinks about it, she's like, I can't believe I did that. You know, but we always... It felt safer, though. I guess. I'm not in Newark, New Jersey, though, oh. in 1981. <laughs> it felt safe. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We made it. Mom, we made it. Nothing ever happened to us. Um, but so we, you know, the time, and I have a line in the book that way where I actually try to do the math. And the amount of time I spent with my father was tiny compared to the influence he had on my life and kind of my deep connection I felt. And that was really, I think, because he was so present in his life to his work, to us. And, you know, to be fair, he got to be more present with us because he wasn't an everyday father, right? And so in some ways, 
we were away and he could do his thing. And then when we were with him, he was all in. Oh, I like that. I mean, today we struggle with that mostly because of phones and screens. Right. We're not all in because, you know, wait, honey, I'm checking my thing. Or uh-huh. You know, and so it was the time. It was, gosh, don't you wish we could raise our kids without screens? I mean, like what a different childhood we had. Well, it's interesting because I think about, you know, we're not often asked, like, who are your big influences mm-hmm. in your life? And they come through to me through your book. I'm sure there's even more. But who would you say are your biggest influences in your I life? I mean, I would certainly say my father as that creative, showing me how to be present and to be a witness to things and to tell stories. Um, 100% my mother for just being that emotional rock. And she is the most optimistic you know, sunny side up person. And so I'm this blend of two, and you need both. I mean, as a runner, to be present, we've just talked about that, to be mindful and in your body is such a key, I think, to being, you know, to being a healthy athlete and a well-balanced athlete is not to just be chasing that finish line, but to be right in your body and paying attention. Like I don't have a coach. I'm self-coached, I'm self-taught. And um, that's really, I think, from my father of tuning in. But then you need that optimism, that crazy, like, we're getting there. When I have that, you know, I have my father's more sort of more introspective side. And then I have my mother's just blazing optimism. Like, it's going to be fine. We'll get there. You know, you you said about your mom, she always had such an amazing Mm -hmm. capacity for delight. Yeah. And that statement just made me like feel joy. Oh, yeah. It's like really we, true. We all want that. And so and, my mom in a way, I mean, and my mom is still with us. And she, um, you know, she really does. So she in her own way is very present. Like she'll just see something and, you know, make just a funny comment about it. And she's, you know, she's takes joy in those things and yeah. the little things. Well, it's also making me think a little bit about this idea of immediate gratification mm-hmm. versus delayed gratification, right. which I don't think comes up in the book, Mm-mm. but it's this idea of like being in the now. Tim always jokes that like, I'm an immediate gratification mm-hmm. girl. I'm like, I really need a coffee right now. Mm-hmm. We're pulling over mm-hmm. right now. Er, next mm-hmm. coffee shop, done. It's down the hatch, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Where he's like that test that they did with the oh, little yeah. kids. Like you can eat the marshmallow Which they've now. disproven, by the way. Oh, it's true. Well, they, they had <laughs> they said disproven. like the, they, the kids who could wait had like more, you know, oh. intelligence. They've disproven it somehow. I've okay. heard. Okay, good. Because, I yeah. mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of just like, how are you feeling, right. I guess. But, um, but yeah, I mean, how talk, talk a little bit about that. Like, you're an ultra runner. Mm-hmm. Does instant gratification even exist? Or is this this the idea of being in it is instant it, it gratification? Is. Every moment that I'm running, and not every moment feels great, and not every day feels great, and not every week feels great. So, but in those moments when I'm running and things are flowing, and or even if they're not, but I'll like round a corner on my favorite trail and I'll look down and I'll just be like, wow, this is my life. I've made it. I've, I don't mean I've made it like period done, but like I've made, I've created this life for myself that I never as a kid growing up in New Jersey would have imagined. It's wonder, it's gratitude, you know, it's all those things you mentioned. It's freedom. Like I have, you know, because I'm a writer and I don't have a, a, day, a desk job or a day job, like I have the freedom to go out. Um, so it's, it is gratification, even in those hard moments. It's just that sense of, wow, like life is pretty amazing. And in the good and the bad, like we were just saying today, when I had that really muddy run, like a hard day of running is a good day of mental training. 
you know that's a really good point and that's your mom trying to get that positive real little positive yeah boost out of something that could really drag some people down yeah you know it also kind of brings me to the topic of motherhood mm-hmm. right. um I mean, I've got a seven-year-old. You have an eight mm-hmm. and a ten, mm-hmm. right. and girls, yeah, all, yeah, yay, yay, go, go, girls. strong girls. <laughs> um, but uh, you mentioned like something about vacillating between like despair and awe, yeah, and that I just relate to that yeah. so much. Right. It's like you're losing a life you knew, oh yeah, but yet you're so grateful to be your mom even when you're waking me up at two in the morning it's that's what Uh, I tell myself I'm I'm proud I'm grateful to be your mom yeah I'm grateful to be your mom it's like you have to remind yourself well it's both sides and that's a huge theme in the book of like being able to hold those contradictions yeah and hold those things both at the same time like oh my god I'm so tired and exhausted and I'm frustrated and I want to run away right now from being a mom and I just want to go to the mountains or I want you know I don't want to have to do what I'm doing and then at the same time, like, don't change for a minute. Like, stay your precious little self, oh. you know? And that's and that's such an ultimate expression of those two sides, like being a mother, because there's moments, and I write about it, that we all feel as parents where you're like, please make this end. And in the very same thought, you're like, please don't ever let this end. You know, because they're so precious. Yeah, they and are. And they're so little for such a short time. You know, I think too, a big part of this process is letting go of anger and resentment towards others mm-hmm. that you may be also focused on yourself that you don't even realize. Right. And, um, you know, I know your relationship with your dad was so important, but there was this underlying maybe anger or confusion yeah. or sadness about like, why did you leave? Yeah. And this idea you just talked about of like wanting to run away, mm-hmm. yet your book is called Running Home. I know. So that that in itself is also a contradiction. contradiction. And right. we all have those contradictions. And I think that this, you know, very much the process of writing the book was showing me that both and, both and exist together all the time. And that's kind of a Zen principle is that you can hold these two things. You know, there's no good, no bad. And um, it's still like really hard to wrap my brain around. But when I see my father, you know, and understand who he was, because that's a really big sort of narrative thread in the book that as I'm pushing myself farther and farther into the mountains and alone and greater distances and learning who I am as a runner, I happen to be learning about who he is as a I won't even say father, as a person, right? Because when we're children, we think our parents are just that one thing, just parents, you know, and you for, you don't understand that they're these multifaceted individuals. And so I he had left behind this incredible archives. And I knew that the photos existed because that was his, you know, career as a National Geographic photographer. So he, we knew that he had this incredible body of work, but what we didn't really know and what we found after he died was all his writing and he was a beautiful writer and he left notebooks um some you would call those journals but i call them notebooks but he left notebooks um he left incredible letters he was an amazing letter writer um and he also left videos and audio cassettes so he would you know when we were kids he would follow us around sometimes with that like panasonic black audio box that was like you know a size of a suitcase and he'd prop it on the table and he'd press play and he'd be like girls just pretend it's not there and at first we were just like 
Meg and I would be rolling our eyes and or gag, you know, or like, you know, hyping it up for, you know, exaggerating. And then we would forget. And now, we, you know, I so that I found an entire box of cassettes um, from our time together, but also his time alone that were incredibly um, very personal and raw. And so he left behind this this incredible trove of material. And um, and I went through it little by little. As I, I mean, it was a journey just like running. And it was all there and labeled and nothing was a secret. You know, he was methodical and I think he was really working on his own memoirs. And he just didn't have time, you know, he ran out of time. He never said so explicitly, but I know, you know, he hinted enough that I, I had a sense. But, um, and so I found, you know, all of it was down in his basement and labeled with post-it notes and just, you oh, know, yeah. he was he was organized. But I couldn't look at it all at once. It was too intense and too painful, some of it. And um, probably someone else, a different, you know, kind of brain, a more methodical brain would have sat down and done it all. But for me, I did it in little bits and pieces. And it was really the right thing for me because it was its own journey. And, And some of the things I didn't know existed. And then I would find or would come to me in such a way. And that's that was part of the magic of this book was that I felt like my father would was still sort of somewhere like nudging a little bit with these things that I would find and that he was this felt presence and I write about that how when I would run I would feel him on the trail sometimes and so he was he was like a presence in the book that that I could feel as I was finding his material wow this it's really deep Mm -hmm. and yet you can feel that some of it was painful, mm-hmm. you know, as you talk through it. For reasons that we find out in the book, my parents split and that had been a mystery and something that, you know, back then adults didn't talk to kids that way. Yes. And didn't okay. explain things. Got it. And so I find, you know, I was trying to understand what had happened to my parents' marriage. And I think a lot of my childhood was spent, you know, trying to solve that mystery. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, which I could totally understand. And it's all like this whole conversation is about how you became who you are today, being here present in the moment. Yeah. Yet, can you really even get there without going through the painful things that help you grow? That's one of the big yeah. questions. I mean, I don't know. Certainly adversity and challenge, 100%, I think you can come out, not always, but I would say that after optimist in me says that you will come out stronger um but it's you have to be in that darkness in that tangle um and in just that thicket where you can't see out for a while um and and that is so uncomfortable it's so uncomfortable i mean that even takes me back to our discussion about anxiety because how can you even get to a place where you're thinking about the bigger picture when you're so consumed by thoughts that are grounding you to the moment that are very negative and scary Oh, I know. It was, um, you're right. And, the, you know, I would be so afraid of leaving my children, like having them be motherless. And, you know, I think it was really like a mortality crisis. I realized, you know, like in childhood and even young adulthood, you you know, you know people die, but you don't believe you will. Like it just happens to other people. And, I mean, that's what being young is about. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But then when you lose someone so close to you at the same time you've just brought this life into the world this you know this tiny precious baby that your job is to take care of 
you know, all of a sudden you realize like, oh, people die. It's for real. And I'm going to die. Just please don't make it now. You know, because I have this baby to take care of. It's true. And those thoughts come to everyone at mm-hmm. different times. Right. I mean, there's no avoiding them. It's just when you can't get out of the cycle of right. thinking them. I would I would think that many people listening have experienced anxiety in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And even more, you know, anxiety and depression. You know, different things at different times. Right. At different levels. Um, what I found interesting, too... First of all, like you said, it was a perfect storm. Yeah. Your dad had died. You're processing that. You have a three-month-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're breastfeeding. You have yeah. a two-year-old, a toddler tugging at you yeah. while you're doing right. all this. I mean, you have to be there for your kids, mm-hmm. but it didn't allow you to go through the things you needed to go through. And one of the things, like, I can see this with your personality. You're like, I'm going to try to fix this. Mm-hmm. So you, like, did all the things. Mm-hmm. You called every healer you could yeah. possibly find. Even the wacky stuff, right? Oh, the right? total wacky. And it, it, Santa Fe is just, you know, like probably like Boulder is just filled with them. I'm a very open person and I'll try, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll try whatever. And um, it felt so bad to be so in the grips of this anxiety because I knew that even while I was afraid of leaving my daughters alone without me, that my anxiety was taking me away from them every single day. That I wasn't there. Yeah. And that, and I, that's what I wanted to change. Um, and so I tried, as you said, like, like name some of the things I mean, and did anything help? Yeah. I think, I mean, acupuncture 100%. And really? I still, cool. I have an amazing acupuncturist and she really helped me with my post, my postpartum for sure. Um, so that was incredible. I, I cut out sugar, which really did help with the anxiety as yeah. well. Um, because the sugar just feeds it. Did you go back to sugar? <laughs> sort of. I try not to. <laughs> I know I, we're all in that same I try boat. not ah. to. But like I did somatic therapy, which is um, like physical sensations of discomfort in your body is like the stress trying to leave your wow, body. And that's okay. proven to help with PTSD. And so people coming back from, you know, overseas and, and, you know, being in conflict situations, somatics has been proven to help. And so like, I would have like tingly sensations in my head that I thought was like, that must be a brain tumor or something. And I went to the somatics woman and she said, no, that's like the stress trying to leave your body. Wow. And so that helped. Um, I went, I did what's called emotional freedom technique which is the tapping Mm -hmm. and I think that probably helps some people I don't want to discount anything right but but that so that was one of the things where you're chanting you're sort of chanting your bad memories trying to get them out Uh while tapping on your body and I did yoga to try to calm myself and yoga is amazing and I wanted to run screaming from the room (laughs) and I did Pilates because I had a lot of like back pain that I was sure was some kind of disease and I thought I should strengthen my maybe if I strengthen my core the pain would go away and my anxiety too and the Pilates guys was super aggressive oh really oh yeah maybe yeah anyway he um it didn't make me feel better let's just put it that way oh my gosh and so um did you feel like you were going crazy was it manifesting physically and in your head well it was like I mean, it manifested physically in that I thought, like, if I had an ache, that it was, like, I would jump to the right away the worst thing. I would jump, right. like, skip over all the, like, probable and plausible and logical things <laughs> and totally. go to, like, the fatal. Yeah. And um, that's a pretty, really painful place to be. Yeah. And um, 
The other thing that really helped me is I went to see a mindfulness um, family therapist. And so she huh. helped me. She's the one who actually helped me be diagnosed with, you know, moderate, mild to moderate postpartum anxiety. But she gave me a, this amazing tool, which I still use, which is when I would be in the real thick the grips of the anxiety, she would say, it's a five senses scan. So it's like, what are you smelling? What are you seeing? What are you tasting, touching, hearing? And I would name them. Like I'm smelling, you know, the ponderosa pines. I'm tasting, you know, the egg I had for breakfast. Uh, and, and that would just put me right in the moment. And so in the moment, there's nothing really to be afraid of in most moments, you know, unless it's you're having like, right. you're being attacked or something. Or but, you're on the edge of a cliff about to fall off. But... But in that moment, still, you're still on the edge of the cliff. You haven't right. fallen. That's true. And so that was a, t- a technique that really worked. Wow, um, cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. And then, okay, but the great. thing that worked best was really being outside in nature. And the way to get outside in nature, the deepest and farthest and fastest when you have tiny children who are breastfeeding and you have to be back, is to run. That's a good point. Or maybe to go on a river rafting trip. Yes. <laughs> yes. We love rivers and they're very, rivers are extremely healing for me. Any time for me in the wilderness is um, rejuvenating and kind of restorative, and but especially rivers because there's that, fl- again, it's that flow that we were talking about. Yes. There's a natural flow to rivers and being on the edge of a river, you see like you just go the speed of the river. You, you're, you know, you could try to go faster. You could paddle downstream as fast as you could. But why? Because the current's going to carry you. And same thing, like you're not going to paddle upstream. You could, but why? So just why don't you just sink into the flow of it and just let it carry you? And so that was this really big metaphor for me of just like being in the moment now and being in my life. In, like as Natalie said, inhabit your life. And you get the added bonus of being in these just gorgeous river canyons where you're away Uh you're away from those news reports of you know I could hear like an NPR snippet of someone with a rare form of x disease and I would like start to feel it so in a river canyon you have nothing you know and so it's that I think it's really like it was a sensory overload for me and I'm a very sensory person and so to this day still like my happiest places are out in nature not away from people because I am uh, very deeply connected to people, but um, away from all the clutter of things and like, you know, just noise and things to buy and, you know, things to do and just to be in, in nature. And so that's, and I think you're right. Like anytime a child is crying, mm-hmm. when, when my kid was a baby, I'd walk outside. Yeah. It helps. Right. Just the difference in the air or take the kid I mean I would take my girls out and um you know just being all of a sudden that would shift something yeah. for them yeah and I don't know about you but like I didn't run in my preg when I was pregnant because it just felt uncomfortable in my mm-hmm. body but I hiked every day of my pregnancies and um and then when the babies like came on the out were on the outside of course they would want to be hiked and so right. my older daughter Pippa would you know, would only fall asleep when I was hiking. So I would go on these like two hour hikes and she would, the minute I put her in the carrier and took like two steps, she was conked out, but I couldn't stop. That was, you know, the hard part was I, if I even stopped to tie my shoe, she would stir. She was so used to motion, you know, always being in motion because I, you know, that is such my, you know, preferred state is to be in motion. You know, I was thinking about something since we're kind of talking about 
parenting a little bit mm-hmm. too, you know, not parenting necessarily, but who, how you are, how your kids are going to see you. Yeah. And I was thinking about like, what did you learn from your parents' relation, your relationship yeah. with your parents that you either do or don't, or that would influence how you want to be a parent? That's a great question. I mean, 100% from my father was being outside into nature. And so he was not an outdoor athlete in the way that people are now today. I mean, he was, he rode his bicycle and he would go exploring. He was, you know, that was who he was as a National Geographic photographer. He was always wandering, looking for things. And so he would ride his bicycle or go on walks and hikes. Um, But it was not competitive, which is sort of a beautiful thing. I mean, that goes back to that humility that we were talking about is his way of seeing the world and being an observer, not having to be like the focus. And so he, but he always was taking us hiking and camping and on rivers and on bicycle trips. And so I have modeled my parenting on that. And when our first daughter, Pippa, was born, a friend of mine, even before she was born when I was pregnant, gave me great advice. And she said, start off as you mean to go on. Ooh, I love that. As a parent. And it was amazing because it was like, okay. And I don't even think, I think she was referring to marriage maybe. Like when you get married, start off as you mean to go on. Like if you don't want to be, you know, cooking dinner eight, seven days a week, as a married person don't start off that way like start off the way you want to go on and but we turned it and made it with parenting and so we loved rivers and we had done river trips Steve and I before the girls were born and we wanted to take them on rivers and introduce them early and they had you know of course a baby is not going to remember it's not about creating memories for them it's about training ourselves to go anyway, mm. even when it's hard and you're changing the baby on the floor of the True. tent. Or you're questioning, should I even be <clears throat> out here? Right. And you're having that, like, what am I doing out right. here? Am I a good parent or a bad parent right. to bring my kid out on a crazy river? Exactly. Well, we didn't do, like, big water, but we would do remote stretches. Wow. And so um, that was has been a guiding principle for us. It's just taking the kids out. And my doctor sort of confirmed that like after four or five days after Pippa was born and you go to that first newborn checkup and he gave me two pieces of great advice. He said, you know, follow her lead or three pieces. So follow her lead. She'll tell you what you, she needs and um, take her everywhere with you. You know, I think I was like, can I take her to, you know, a pool? And he's like, just take her everywhere. Just bring her along. And his third thing was, whatever you do, don't look anything up on the internet. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And so it's a good reminder. It was a good reminder. And so we've really tried to live that way. So just taking the kids out, I think, is um, they're happier outside, especially as they get into sort of adolescence where there's a lot of friend drama. Oh, yeah. And the pressure for technology. And our girls don't have any screens. But um, I feel like nature, and this is really what I write about a lot for outside, is that antidote and is really that pressure release for these kids who are under a lot of pressure now, whether it's from social media and screen yes. time. Well, and we're lucky. You and I both, we live in places yeah. where trails, right. real trails, yeah. like world-class amazing trails are at our mm-hmm. back door. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who are smack dab in a suburb of somewhere and Mm. all they have is a concrete jungle and some barren fields. Like, how did they achieve this? I still think you can have a relation. I think it's about having a relationship with your environment, whatever your environment is. And so it's like, go. and I think this mm -hmm. applies to most people. I, I would guess there's some, you know, urban neighborhoods which aren't safe. 
But I think for the most part, people even can have a relationship with like taking the kids out, walking to the store and right. being in, in, again, inhabiting the world. And, you know, knowing here's a shop you can stop into if you run into trouble. Like I've trained, you know, we've practiced with my girls walking to school. If you run into trouble, go into this gallery or, you know, he, we know the owner of this shop. You can pop in and say hi or, you know, and so giving them that feeling of belonging to a place. So it doesn't have to, I mean, the wilderness is amazing and healing, but it's almost just more like inhabit your world, like well, have and, a relationship. And and including movement, mm-hmm. body, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like exercise Move or into movement it. in some way. Yeah. Because you build a relationship with the place by moving through it. And you build a relationship with yourself by moving your body through it. And you know, you know, you just learn about your body and and how you feel when I'll see my girls walking to school and my little one Maisie will hang back and I know she's daydreaming. And I know she's making a story in her head. Oh, I love that. And I love that because for me, movement has always been linked to imagination and creativity. And so when I would move my body, I would ha- I would make stories in my head. And I think those two are so linked. And, you know, it's that flow of our physical selves creates flow in our, you know, creative minds. And so I love seeing her because I know that she's not going to get that sitting at the table, you know, as, as easily, like bent over her homework. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, movement triggers an open mind yes exactly thoughts that's why writing and running go so oh they're so incredible and I you know and I was fortunate to sort of understand that really early on as a girl I would my thing wasn't so much running although I did run as a child but just like once a year as kind of for fun but I would run around the block okay that's hilarious though yeah, because everyone's going to buy this book. Yeah. <laughs> and in the book, you talk about that once a year race. Yes. So once a year, you're like, oh, I didn't do a lot of run just once a year. That sounds like hilarious. Once to me. a year. And once <laughs> a year, I would go do this 10K run, the first of which we just started as a complete lark when I was seven. And, you know, running six miles when you're seven, it's like you might as well run to the moon. Like, what is that about? It is so far. And... um but I, I understood, I felt in that moment of crossing the finish line of what it meant to persevere. And I liked that feeling. Yeah. I was last. Yeah. I think I was dead last. So it was not about the result. <laughs> it was about the journey, like finishing. That's, that is a lesson for you today. Because mm-hmm. I want to segue more into your running career. Yeah. So one of my first thoughts is like, who are you? Are you a runner? Are you a mom? Are you a writer? Yeah. Like, how do you describe yourself? I'm all of those things. Yeah. I mean... And I think that we live in a world where someone they, people want those labels. They do, yes. They want the label like she's an ultra runner and she writes. Or she's a writer who, you know, sometimes is an ultra runner. And then other times you get the big mom label, which I am totally a mom, but I wouldn't call myself a mom first. first. Yeah. That's not yeah. the first way I describe myself. Yeah. And so I guess I would say like, I'm a storyteller. Yes, you are. But I'm, I don't know. I just shy away from those labels. Um, yeah, but you're creating stories every day, mm-hmm. every day. And you know, this is ingrained very early that it wasn't about the finish. It right. wasn't about winning yet. 
the first ultra run that you jumped into when you were 40? Mm -hmm, 40. Oh my gosh. You won. Yeah. And so were you able to like keep your ego out of it? Did your ego ever want to try to come out and be like, I could be the best? Yes. Yeah. And And I talk about that in Running Home is how that ego really wants, it likes to win. Yeah, it really and it feels good. And, and, you know, I'm I sometimes I wish I were that person who could show up at a race and be like, I'm cool in the middle of the pack, you know, but on race day, when you show up, it's like, oh, that ego is like, I'm here. I'm here, too. And so it's a constant practice for me is to keep that ego in check and to remember that the reason I've run my whole life was for something bigger than the win you know it's for the writing it's for how I feel in my body just as a person very strong just confident on top of my mountain I run the same mountain all the time in Santa Fe and I when I run it I feel like truly who I am and so it's that that like we talked about it's a it's an expression of myself and so anytime I get caught up and and I had that after that first win at Jemez 50k then you're like, I've got something to prove, you know, and and that second win and that and that builds on it, you know, itself and And the first time you don't win after that. Right. You feel only as good as your result you just had. Yeah. And I think we're in a culture too. Like after I won Leadville, I felt that was the ultimate expression of my it life. It wasn't you, that long ago. You were talking about how <laughs> yeah. what are you? Are you this or you that? I'm all those things. And when one's working, right? And I was saying it's that perfect feedback loop. Mm-hmm. You know, the the better I'm running, the better I'm writing, the better I'm mothering and like, in, you know, in reverse. And so Leadville was the ultimate expression of my life, like everything converging in a single moment. And, but then afterwards, like you feel like, do I have to keep proving? Not to me, because I know I'll never touch that. Even if, even if I, you know, improve my time at Leadville, that feeling of complete convergence that existed on that day and I may have other days but I you know I don't want to ever try to best that but you know like afterwards I was out and I was thinking well I should get sponsors and I want to support my running because I want to spread the message that you can overcome even if your doctor's like you should never run again right you can create your own stories but I went looking for sponsors and there was that feeling of like I had to keep showing who I was. That's a very um and I and like I could stop right there and that Leadville, you know, my pacer at Leadville as we were kind of coming to the finish line, he was amazing and he just said, you know, no matter whatever happens, he's like you are a Leadville champion and that will never change. That's a really good point. You know, and it's a hard and it's thing. enough. It is enough. Enough is a good word too. It's enough. And and so I don't feel so much that I'm trying to prove myself still, but I feel like ultra running has become a little bit like, you know, supercharged of like, you know, you're constantly having to, you know, prove who you are to be valid. And I mean, as we said, like the running, the racing is just a piece for me. I was uh, talking to a woman yesterday at this event where I was uh, a speaker and she came up to me and said, I want to talk to you because I was also a professional athlete. I was a soccer player and I'm really struggling. And I just really, my career just hit a peak and then it just went downhill for years and I never recovered from it. And 
transitioning has been hard into like who am I now so it's all wrapped up in self-identity and at the end of the conversation I just said well who do you want to be yeah and um it actually leads me we're almost done Mm -hmm. we can't talk much longer we've been going for a while but there is a there is a little passage in your book that could I read it and you could maybe comment Mm -hmm. on it and it speaks to that whole point of what do I really want Mm -hmm. um you say I think of people my age who want bigger more beautiful houses high heels new haircuts the best schools I just want this to move my body until it's tired and dirty and write stories and sleep outside and love my girls and Steve as long and and hard as possible. I know this as clearly as I know there's no way of knowing Mm. anything really. I'll have to fling myself forward with equal parts conviction and ease just like the river. If I'm going to die, I want to live. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it that simple? It sounds like it in that moment, doesn't it? I just realized like, right, our time is limited and just, I just want to do what feels good. And that's how I've tried to live. And that's certainly how I try to run, which is like, if I'm happy running and I'm feeling good, and again, it's not every day you're going to have hard runs or runs where your body is screaming or whatever. But if I can run happy, then I'm doing it right. And then I'll know, you know, I can run healthy and then I can run as long as possible. That's the goal is I want to be living this way when I'm 70. You know, I'm not going to just leave it all out there and run myself into the ground now because this is a it's been a lifelong passion and pursuit of mine um, to be a physical person in the world. And um, it's just a gateway to me for writing and mothering and creativity and storytelling so my running you know serves all those things and and that's good because it kind of keeps it in check from being this very egotistical pursuit or chasing sponsors or chasing wins it's almost harder to be naturally awesome at something Mm -hmm. and still have the same philosophy that you have yeah and you're doing it yeah i'm trying you are talented beyond belief I mean, you're coming out into this crazy world that's growing very fast. Very full fast. Of talent. Claire Gallagher lives on the other side yeah. of this street right here. Oh my here. gosh. Dave She's Mackey amazing. lives across oh the street. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's just, you were surrounded yeah. by talent. And you came into it a little later in yeah. the game. And I can just feel that it's about more than the run. Yeah. It's deeper and there's joy. Yeah. But it's also a way to process and to keep regrounding yourself. Yeah. And that. I think like your message is just so inspiring because of that. It's Mm -hmm. not about winning. It's not about the ego. It's not about throwing yourself out there and trying to, like you said, make the sponsors happy. Chase times or, you know, like I thought about, you know, when I, because I do have a fantastic sponsor, Goo is my sponsor. And that is 100% in alignment with me because I've always used Goo and it's like a kind of homecoming. And, but they understand me on that deeper level of who I am as a deeper athlete than just on the podiums. And I've thought about what if I were to sign on with other sponsors, would there be a new pressure to not be me? and to change my style of running and training and being in that flow and listening to myself and choosing races because I feel that intuitive nudge that 
oh, I want to do that. You know, would I become someone different? And it's, I don't know that it's worth it because what, the way I am right now brings is just joyful and it's so authentic. Um, so it's working. So when you started your book, did you think about this? How do I want people to feel when they read it? That's a great question. I The book has always had its own momentum and energy, and you probably feel it reading it. Like it feels like running itself. Uh-huh. It has a build, and it's like a, it has a flow. And, and so, then it like stops, and suddenly some old memory comes in, just like when I'm running, and yeah. I remember like some old boyfriend from sixth yeah. grade, and you're yeah. like, why am I thinking of this uh-huh. guy? I mean, it does feel like running. And, and so... I would say I just tried to let the book be what it wanted and to bring it into the world. Like I feel sort of more that I was just the shepherd kind of ushering it out. So I didn't have specific um, kind of plans and it wasn't, um, you know, orchestrated. But I will say that I really wanted, the one thing I wanted with the book was that it had to feel authentic in that it had to feel like you were in a discovery mode because that's really what it was. Like when I was in the grief, you cannot see out of that. You don't know where you're mm-hmm. going. I didn't know I was going to run ultras and win and write a book, you know, and and heal myself that way. And so I didn't want the book to have that overarching kind of um, preordained feeling, you know, like mapped out. It couldn't be mapped out because that was not true to the experience. Yeah. And so I really wanted it to feel that – you know, that it was unfolding and that everyone has a story that's unfolding right this minute. Your story is unfolding. This is really cool. So I have a nonprofit. It's called Running Start. And we help women who have serious issues in their lives discover running as a tool to help them get through this stage that they're in and break out the other side. And whether they stay runners or not, they've they've shifted something mm-hmm. so they can at least get out of being in a stuck place. Yeah. I'm going to make all of them buy this that's book. Ama- <laughs> that's amazing. And I think that's a great segue for me just to say, you know, running was the through line for me. That was the way through, not a way, but into myself. Yeah. And that's sort of what the running home is about. But the book isn't just running is not the only way to do that. Yeah, yeah. Whatever your thing is, you could just take out running wherever it says running and just sub in your own thing and the message would be the same. Well, it can't be like meth or cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> like let's sub yeah, in something yeah. positive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, but I get it. Totally. And I'm finding that people as I travel around are connecting on that much deeper level mm-hmm. that um you know, running is the metaphor for sort of moving through something that's difficult and coming out, like you were saying, with your women out the other side. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's and you do, you pop out, but you just have you don't have to know where you're going either. You just have to make that effort every day. And you have to give in to the process. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be willing to not know where you're going, which as we said is uncomfortable. It is. We're not taught that. No, we experience it. We're always like, what are you doing? What's next? What's happening? Yeah, you being one step ahead can really work against you. Right. I think you miss a lot. Yeah. You can miss those moments. Yes. That come through and that are the teachers. Yeah. Well, we have been rocking it today. So we gotta wrap it up because you gotta get some sleep. You got a long run tomorrow. You got some book signings going on. Yeah, I've got some book signings, some readings, which has been amazing. I mean, as I said, people are coming forth with their incredible stories of grief or loss or adversity and their way through which is sometimes running 
But, you know, I knew that I, going on a tour, that I would have to get brave and be able to share my story. And I was really, I just wanted to share and give. What I didn't expect was everyone giving their stories to me and sharing with me. And again, it's like being in that race, yeah. receiving. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just receiving them. And it's such a gift. You've become you become a portal. You think you're alone. I mean, that that grief is so crazy and, and magical and weird and makes no sense that you don't realize. Like, I didn't realize that other people felt this way. I wish I had. I wouldn't maybe have felt so alone. You know, this is probably a good time to wrap up with a final question that I ask everybody who comes on the show, including your friend Susie Reinhardt. Oh, okay. Who hopefully we'll see at the book signing. She's been on. Um, And that is if you can just leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? I would just say listen to that voice inside. Listen to your intuition, your instincts. It doesn't always have to make sense or you don't have to know where it's taking you. But if you have that feeling do what moves you like do that perfect do that everyone do what moves you yeah thank you katie you're welcome so fun that was awesome (laughs) thank you all for tuning in today what a blast katie is a complete rock star just being around her makes me feel like i'm in the flow Don't you just love that concept? I love how she says that when you are in the flow, you become the thing that you are doing. You are running. You are writing. You are eating. You are breathing. It's it's honestly a little too deep for me sometimes to think about that. So I just sit with the concept and then guess what? While I'm sitting with the concept, I become sitting with the concept. Yes. Serious mind blow right there. That's what I think. Uh, This episode is just so full of nuggets. I am anxious to hear what your faves are. Please post it, share it. Let me know what you think. Um, And tell Katie what you think and give her some love and cheers because she is just such a special person. For more on Katie Arnold, head over to her website, katiearnold.net. If you go to katiearnold.com, I think it's like a little kid's site. So go to katiearnold.net, grab a copy of her book on Amazon or at your local bookstore, see her on the road. Um, She definitely, I saw on her website, she has an event in New York on May 8th. So if you're in that region, check it out and uh, cheer for her, support her at any of her races this year. All right, everyone, that is a wrap on Katie Arnold. Now it's time to work on that flow and get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.